Well, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Um, you read it just like Melody Wood wrote it, uh, so that was perfect. Uh, Melody, if you don't know, is my um, research assistant in the department where I work at the Heritage Foundation. She's a 2015 graduate of Christendom College, um, and we're very grateful to have her at Heritage. And there's a chance that she might be leaving us to go to graduate school, uh, in which case we'd be very excited to have one of you uh, come fulfill her uh, place at Heritage. I want to start uh, tonight, uh, as any good conservative should, uh, by turning the clock back 50 years. I want to turn the clock back to when Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, back when he was the Secretary of Labor, wrote his famous report, uh, which became known as the Moynihan Report. Uh, Moynihan sounded the alarm bell because uh, in 1964, births to single mothers in the general population were at 5%. But within the African-American community, they were approaching 25%. And Moynihan said, something's going wrong. Uh, something is going wrong within the black family uh, that a quarter of all black children are being born outside of marriage and won't have the benefit of having a father. Moynihan was then roundly criticized as being a racist. Um, the press attacked him. Uh, he wasn't a racist. Uh, he was a Harvard professor of government. Uh, he was then a liberal, secretary, uh, a liberal senator from the state of New York. Uh, he wrote the report precisely because he cared about black people, and he thought that family structure mattered. It was a social justice issue. Now, fast forward the clock to today. And remember that in Moynihan's day, uh, it was 5% of all Americans born to single mothers, and it was 25% of African Americans. Today, those numbers are 40% of all Americans are born to single mothers. It's 50% of Hispanics, and it's over 70% of African Americans are born to single moms. Now, the first thing to say about those statistics are that gays and lesbians aren't to blame for them. The fact that a near majority of all Americans and over a majority of certain segments of Americans are born to single moms is not a problem of gay marriage, um, same-sex Nothing caused that problem. But what we just saw at the Supreme Court a year and a half ago is the outflow of a certain logic. And both the births to single mothers statistics and the judicial redefinition of marriage spring forth from a common cause. That common cause is the sexual revolution. Uh, that common cause is the 60s. Um, so if you think about this, you have two generations now in which heterosexuals make a mess of human sexuality. Uh, they make a mess of the family. They make a mess of marriage. Through things like cohabitation, uh, premarital sex, non-marital childbearing, uh, the introduction of no-fault divorce laws, and then the more than doubling in the rates of divorce. So you have two generations of straight people who don't take monogamy or exclusivity or permanence seriously. And then that sets up five unelected justices on the Supreme Court to say sexual complementarity doesn't matter either. It's only after a culture fails to take marriage seriously within the majority of the culture that you can have an elite sector like the Supreme Court fundamentally redefine what that institution is. So another way of saying this is that gay marriage isn't the cause of our marital problems in the United States, but it's a symptom of them. It's a consequence of them. 
And it's a consequence that will now function as an accelerant. Um, the redefinition of marriage, especially the judicial redefinition of marriage, now has the potential to exacerbate uh, the collapse of marriage within the United States and to raise new challenges for re religious freedom. And so that's mainly where I'm going to focus tonight is the religious freedom challenges. But first, what I want to do is suggest there are three lessons um, that we can learn uh, in how to respond to Obergefell. Obergefell is the Supreme Court case um, two Junes ago that redefined marriage. There are three lessons we can learn in how to respond to Obergefell from the pro-life movement. Now, I imagine many, if not most, if not all of you, were in Washington, D.C. this past Friday for the March for Life. Now, why is it the case that over 40 years later, after the Roe v. Wade decision, um, several hundred of you would board buses, would drive to D.C., and would march for life? Um, what is it that the pro-life movement has done successfully that we could learn from to form a marriage movement in the United States, that we could learn from and how to think about how to respond to the Obergefell decision? So let me go through three lessons, and then I'm going to try to leave some uh, time for questions. I might even leave time for answers. <laughs> so the first lesson from the pro-life movement is that they rejected judicial activism, uh, and they rejected judicial supremacy. Uh, they said that Roe v. Wade told a lie, both about the Constitution and about unborn human life. Uh, they said the Supreme Court didn't get the Constitution right when it declared that there's a right to kill an unborn child, and it didn't get the dignity of the human person right when it said that certain human beings didn't deserve the law's protection. And now, 40-some years later, this is still an issue. You will see it will be an issue tomorrow when Donald Trump announces who his pick is for the next Supreme Court justice. It'll be an issue in several weeks when the hearings take place for that judicial nominee. We have kept this a live issue. It's not settled law. Many people claimed at the time the Supreme Court settled the abortion issue. And I would say there's probably no issue in American public legal life that is less settled at the constitutional level than the abortion question. It literally is one vote away from being overturned. And that's largely because pro-lifers refused to accept Roe as good constitutional law or as the truth about the underlying moral, philosophical, anthropological issue. The same thing is true on the marriage issue. There's nothing in the US Constitution that requires a redefinition of marriage. The Obergefell decision is judicial activism. It's five unelected judges simply replacing their philosophy of marriage for the people's beliefs about marriage. It's five unelected judges on the Supreme Court saying, we know better about what the nature and purpose of marriage is than the framers of the Constitution and the citizens who voted to define marriage in state after state after state as the union of husband and wife. The marriage debate, I was here two years ago um, for the uh, Cincinnati League at the invitation of Melody. And I spoke about how to understand that debate. There are two different versions, visions, of what marriage is. Some people think it's simply a union of two consenting adults, uh, where two people love each other, live with each other, care for each other. That's one vision of what marriage is. There's another vision, that marriage is inherently the union of sexually complementary spouses, where a man and a woman unite as one flesh, as husband and wife, 
to then be mother and father to any children that that union produces. That's another vision of what marriage is. There's nothing in the US Constitution, there's nothing in the 14th Amendment, there's nothing about the Equal Protection Clause that tells us which of these two visions of marriage is the truth. The Supreme Court wasn't doing law when it redefined marriage, it was doing philosophy and it was doing it poorly because it replaced a good vision of marriage with a bad vision of marriage. So one of the first lessons we should learn from the pro-life movement is to reject judicial activism, reject judicial supremacy. Um, speak the truth that the court got this issue wrong. Um, it's not the last word on this subject. And bear witness to the truth. Um, on Friday, you bore witness to the truth about the dignity of unborn human life. And the challenge now will be bearing witness to the truth about the conjugal nature of marriage. So that was lesson one. Let me move to lesson two, and this is where the title of tonight's lecture comes from. The second lesson from the pro-life movement uh, is that they said, if the Supreme Court has created a right for a woman to choose to have an abortion, we also need to protect the right of Americans to choose not to perform an abortion and to choose not to pay for an abortion. And so it was vitally important that six months after Roe v. Wade, Congress passed what's known as the Church Amendment. The Church Amendment is not named for buildings uh, made out of stones with stained glass windows and steeples. The Church Amendment is named for the Democratic senator from Idaho, Frank Church. And Senator Church saw that the court had just uh, issued an aggressive uh, assault in the culture war by striking down pro-life laws in all 50 states. He said, the court has just advanced the ball, creating a right to abortion. He said, we as Congress, placing a check and a balance on the court, we should protect the right of citizens not to perform an abortion, not to pay for an abortion. He covered the performance part. It was the Hyde Amendment uh, that subsequently protected the funding part. So what the Church Amendment says, a bipartisan bill that was passed six months after Roe, it says that, a, um, any healthcare entity that receives government funding can't force a nurse or a doctor to perform an abortion. Uh, the Church Amendment was then buttressed several years later um, with the Weldon Amendment, which said that any medical student couldn't be forced into learning how to perform an abortion, and that no medical residency program could force residents to assist or perform an abortion, and then the Hyde Amendment, which said taxpayer funds couldn't pay for an abortion. What do all these provisions ensure? It ensured the ability of pro-life Americans to be full and equal citizens. We didn't say that these provisions were a license to discriminate against women. We didn't say that the pro-life doctor or the pro-life nurse was anti-woman. Uh, what we said was that we're gonna have to agree to disagree for the time being on the abortion question. Um, that if you're a doctor or a nurse or a medical student or a hospital, and in your conscience, you can't assist at an abortion. You can't perform it. You can't pay for it. You can't house it in your facility. We're not going to punish you. We're going to hold you to all the same medical standards that every other healthcare professional, professional is held to, but we're not going to hold you to a litmus test on abortion. So your doctors need to be competent, they need to be licensed, uh, your surgical procedures need to be up to par, 
But we're not going to say the fact that you're pro-life counts against you for those regulations, for those certifications, for those licensings, for those forms of funding. These provisions is, are what have made it possible for Catholics and evangelicals and Mormons and Jews and other pro-life Americans to be doctors and nurses. It's what made it possible for Catholic hospitals to flourish in the United States. I imagine some of you are thinking about careers in medicine, becoming a nurse, becoming a doctor. If there was a requirement that as a condition of being certified as a registered nurse or as an MD, you had to learn how to perform an abortion and be willing to assist at an abortion, it would eliminate your ability to follow that vocation, to answer that calling. And so it was vitally important that 40 years ago, pro-lifers and others fought for this provision. The same thing now needs to take place in the marriage debate because there are vocations that might be closed to Americans if a certain side of this debate wins and claims that Americans who believe the truth about marriage and simply want to live out the truth about marriage in their vocations are engaged in what they call discrimination. And that's where you see the phrase license to discriminate being used when states um, have tried to protect the freedom of various nonprofits, charities, schools, and wedding professionals to operate according to their beliefs. And so I want to give you three different examples, three different categories of examples, and your, your, your college will be one of them. But let me start with what I find is um, the most tragic of consequences here, and this is the case of Catholic charity adoption agencies. Catholic charity adoption agencies have been forced to shut down in three different jurisdictions in Massachusetts, in Illinois, and where I unfortunately reside in Washington, DC. Now, why has that been the case? Catholic charities, uh, private religious adoption agencies do about 20 to 25% of all adoptions in the United States. So they don't have a monopoly on the adoption business. The majority of adoptions are handled by government-run agencies. But Catholic charities simply said, we want to be left alone, we want to be left free, to find the orphans who have been entrusted to our care a home with a married mother and father. Catholic Charities, for example, in Boston had the best track record, um, the highest marks at placing the hardest to place kids into loving homes. Many uh, prospective parents want to adopt the newborn baby. They're cute and they're cuddly. Uh, you can take home the newborn baby and immediately feel a connection and feel a sense of fulfillment. Not as many prospective parents want to adopt the seven-year-old boy with behavioral problems who has spent the past two years bouncing around from foster home to foster home to foster home. So chalk this up either to Catholic guilt or to grace. But one way or the other, the Catholic charity adoption agency was able to place those children with greater success than the government-run agencies. Now, looking at you, many of you seem that you're old enough to have driver's license. So imagine what your experience was like at the DMV when you went for your road test and you went to get your driver's license. And now imagine what the government-run adoption agency uh, might be. <laughs> and now imagine why you might want the Catholic Charity Adoption Agency to be there as an option, right? No one's forced to go to them. They only do less than one quarter of all adoptions. So they weren't preventing gay and lesbian couples from adopting from the government-run adoption agency or from the secular humanist adoption agency. 
They simply said, we want to continue doing what we're doing, serving women who are facing crisis pregnancy by letting them know there's a place where they can place their child and will find their child a loving home, and then helping families welcome new children into their lives. Welcoming a new child into your life is not like renewing your driver's license. They're both material needs, but they're also are spiritual needs, and Catholic charities could minister to the entire person. They're no longer allowed to do that work in several jurisdictions in the United States because the government said they were discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, I'll say more about this uh, during the Q&A if you want to get deeper into this. I don't want to get too lost into the weeds here, but I do want to suggest one thing. Whatever you think about Catholic Charities' decision, sexual orientation has nothing to do with it. They weren't discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. They weren't saying that because the parents are gay, they can't be good parents. Because the prospective adoptive parents are two moms, and because they're lesbians, they can't love a child. That's not what their reasoning process was. You look at their strain of practical judgments, it was that a mom and a dad aren't interchangeable, that mothers and fathers aren't replaceable. Now, you can agree with them or disagree with them about that judgment, but it has nothing to do with sexual orientation. And so it was a misapplication of the law for the state to say that this was sexual orientation discrimination. At no point did they, think, did they even take into consideration the sexual orientation of the prospective parents. What they took into consideration was sexual complementarity, that men and women are different, that mothers and fathers bring unique gifts to the parenting enterprise, and that children deserve both a mom and a dad. It strikes me that we should be capacious enough as a, of a society to say we can agree to disagree. So even if you think two moms or two dads is the same thing as a mom and a dad, there's no reason to shut down the Catholic Adoption Agency. Simply go to a different adoption agency. Let the Catholics do adoption according to their beliefs. So that's one example. Let me move to another example, the case of education. During the oral arguments uh, for Obergefell, um, so just about two years ago, it was two years ago in April, Justice Alito asked the Solicitor General of the United States, what's going to happen to Christian schools who continue to teach that marriage is the union of a man and a woman? Will the federal government treat them like racist schools? And in particular, he asked about the Bob Jones University precedent in which the IRS revoked the nonprofit tax status of Bob Jones University, an evangelical fundamentalist school that had a campus policy against interracial dating. And he said, are you going to treat Orthodox Jewish, Roman Catholic, Evangelical, Latter-day Saint, Mormon, Muslim, various schools who believe this, are you going to treat them like racists? And the answer from the Solicitor General was chilling. I was in the courtroom uh, that morning, and there was almost like an audible gasp, because what he said was, I don't deny it, Justice Alito, that's going to be an issue. I don't deny it, it's going to be an issue. Now, if you're trying to persuade the majority of the justices to vote your way, there were other answers available. He could have said, oh, Justice Alito, believing the man-woman marriage thing, that's fundamentally different than being a racist. You know, we think they're wrong, but we don't think they're racists. And as a result, the federal government would never treat them like racists for all of the following reasons. He could have said, yes, it's rational to believe we're created male and female and that male and female are created for each other and that moms and dads 
aren't interchangeable. It's rational, but at the end of the day, we don't think that's the best policy. And therefore, whereas racism is irrational, it's based only on animus, only on white supremacy, only on various forms of bigotry, we wouldn't treat people who disagree with us about marriage in the same way. It's not what he said. He said more or less, it's going to be an issue and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. My sense is that had Hillary Clinton won this past election, we would have gotten to that bridge much more quickly than we now will. What does that mean, though, for your institution? What does that mean for other institutions? Now, Christendom doesn't take federal funding. It doesn't take any government funding. And so one area that you hear people say, look, if you don't take government money, you don't have to worry about government strings. But here's why the example of Bob Jones University is so particularly relevant here. Imagine if you had to start paying property taxes on all of your campus, and you had to start paying corporate income taxes on all of the donations that you receive at Christendom, and all of your donors had to start paying taxes on the donations that they make to Christendom College. What you would simultaneously see is that your operating budget would shrink because donations would dry up because your donors aren't receiving um, a tax benefit. They aren't deducting their donation to you. And then what you do receive will shrink further because you're paying about 30 to 35% of your revenue to Uncle Sam in the form of taxes at the corporate interest, uh, at the corporate, uh, corporate tax rate. It would be crippling to many religious colleges and universities, many small liberal arts religious colleges that don't have giant endowments like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, who don't have giant alumni networks. Um, simply losing your nonprofit tax status would put you at a competitive disadvantage to all other colleges and universities. Now imagine that you lost your accreditation. How many of you would like to go on to some form of higher education, to go to law school, to go to business school, to go to medical school? Well, if you don't attend a four-year accredited college, many of those schools won't even consider your application. This came up at Gordon College, an evangelical school outside of Boston, um, which simply because their president signed a letter to President Obama saying, if you order a federal anti-discrimination executive order protecting on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, please include a religious liberty protection for schools like Gordon. We don't think we discriminate, but if you're going to claim we discriminate, at least pro provide some protection for us to continue doing what we're doing. That letter was leaked to the media, and then the accrediting agency for New England schools started investigating Gordon. Now, why is that the case? Gordon has a campus policy, which I believe is similar to yours. Uh, Gordon's campus policy is that we promote chastity for all students and faculty, and that means we believe sex should be reserved for marriage, and marriage should be understood as the union of husband and wife. So it's one standard for all students. All students struggle with that standard. It's challenging for all students. It poses uh, particular struggles for students with same-sex attractions. I don't think we should deny that. That's a particularly uh, challenging standard. But many students who attend religious colleges with same-sex attractions do it precisely because of the support that they receive. So imagine that you're an Orthodox faithful Catholic. You have same-sex attractions, and you aspire to holiness. You aspire to chastity as a virtue that you embody and live out. The government would be telling you that no school should be allowed to exist that would provide you the type of support that you desire 
because other students with same-sex attractions want them to be encouraged and celebrated and acted upon. This strikes me that here what we want is pluralism. We want my alma mater, Princeton, to be authentically secular and liberal and let them embrace secular liberal values. But we want Christendom to be authentically Catholic. And we want Wheaton College to be authentically evangelical. And we want BYU to be authentically Mormon. And we want yeshiva to be authentically Jewish. And then we want students and parents and faculty members to decide what type of community do I aspire to be a part of. Maybe I aspire to be at the secular liberal university. Maybe I aspire to be at the big public university. Maybe I aspire to be at the Catholic liberal arts college. What makes American higher education the envy of the world is that we don't impose uniformity on every type of school. We say let a thousand flowers bloom, provided there's basic competency. So accreditation doesn't look to impose a litmus test about sexual ethics or about abortion or about same-sex marriage. What it says is, are you actually teaching people um, something legitimate when it comes to English and history and mathematics and science and philosophy? Academic standards are okay for the purposes of accreditation, but a litmus test on a culture war issue like marriage, just like abortion, should be anathema. That's a bridge too far. That is simply the winners of the Obergefell decision trying to impose their worldview on all of higher education. It would make a place like Christendom uh, impossible to flourish in the future. Let me turn to uh, the last type of case that I want to mention, and that's the wedding professionals. Um, so imagine that you graduate from college you feel that your calling in life is to be a baker or a florist or a photographer. Uh, you think God's giving you certain artistic gifts and talents, and you try to honor God in your daily vocation. Uh, most of us will spend the majority of our lives at work. Um, what we will do from 9 in the morning to 5 p.m. will be how we serve our neighbors and how we honor God. What we have seen are cases where Bakers, florists, photographers have no problem serving their gay customers, have no problem employing gay employees. They simply have an objection to helping to celebrate a same-sex wedding. And then they've been hit with thousands of dollars of fines for not violating their conscience. I just want to mention two specific examples. Uh, one involves a 70-year-old grandmother, uh, Baronel Stutzman. Uh, Baronel lives in Washington State. She's a florist. Uh, she's had gay employees in her floral studio. Uh, she was serving this particular gay couple that sued her for about a decade. Uh, she provided them flowers, happy birthday flowers, get well soon flowers. And then Washington State redefined marriage, and they were going to get married. And they went to her and they said, Baronel, can you do our wedding flowers? Uh, she sat down with one of them. She said, Robert, you know how much I love uh, the two of you but I can't do wedding flowers for a same-sex wedding. I can't use my God-given artistic gifts and talents to celebrate what I believe isn't a wedding. She thought they left on good terms. They hugged each other. He got up and left. And then a few days later, she was sued. And she was sued in both her personal and her professional capacity. And the reason I mentioned her being sued in both capacities is that she can lose not just her business, at the age she's now 72, and she's still 
in the appeals process. She can lose not just her business, she can lose her home, she can lose her livelihood, she can lose her life savings. Because in the neighboring state of Oregon, a young evangelical couple, Aaron and Melissa Klein, were sued by a lesbian couple who they declined to bake a wedding cake for. Uh, they were happy to sell birthday cakes. They were happy to sell cakes that were on the rack in the refrigerator, but they couldn't do a custom wedding cake. They were sued. They lost that lawsuit, and they had to pay $135,000 in fines. Uh, that sort of fine forced them to shut down their business. They didn't have $135,000 lying around in the bank. And then they were told that if they were to open up again and continue selling wedding cakes, for every additional same-sex wedding that they didn't cater, they could expect a similar lawsuit and a similar fine. And then they were faced with boycotts of people who were simply saying, we aren't going to go to this uh, bakery any longer, and by activists who said, we're only going to go to this bakery to get our same-sex wedding cakes done. So they knew that if they opened up on day one, there would be a request for a same-sex wedding cake. They couldn't say yes to that request, and they would be shut down. If you know anything about the bakery business, you make almost all of your money on wedding cakes. I'm planning a wedding right now, and it's ridiculous what they charge if you call it a wedding cake. If you call it a birthday cake, it's like 20 bucks. If you call it a wedding cake, all of a sudden it's like a thousand, two. It's ridiculous. But that's how bakers actually make a living. So if you can't do wedding cakes, you can't really make a living as a baker. So that's what they found in their experience. They were forced to shut down. Now, Washington State, Oregon, these aren't exactly places where evangelical grandmothers have monopolies in the flower arranging business or the cake baking business. More or less every other bakery and floral studio in these states supported same-sex marriage and was more than happy to bake a same-sex wedding cake or to arrange the same-sex wedding flowers. So it's not as if the same-sex couple here would have been unable to find a baker or a florist. In fact, more or less everyone else was happy to do this. So what was the purpose of this fine? It wasn't to protect the ability of gay Americans to find a wedding cake or find wedding flowers. It was to send a signal. Uh, they were using this baker and this florist as an example to educate everyone else that they believe something that's unacceptable, uh, that it's unacceptable bigotry to believe that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, and we won't let you live it out in your professional lives. It's the exact opposite of what we did in the abortion context. So it strikes me that our options right now, um, and this is gonna be a challenge going forward, uh, and I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I don't know what the future holds, and so I think what we have to do here is do our part to make the future hold something good. So the challenge is, will Americans who believe that we're created male and female, and that male and female are created for each other, will they be treated the way that pro-life Americans have been treated for the past 40 years? On the wrong side of a Supreme Court decision, but full and equal citizens, able to live out their lives in the public square without penalty, or will they be treated like racists on the wrong side of a Supreme Court decision and then penalized and marginalized and coerced? That strikes me as the situation right now that's an open question in the United States. And so my challenge to you would be to lend your um, assistance where you can in your vocation and your calling in life to make it more likely that we're treated the way pro-lifers have been treated. Uh, because we're on the side of truth here. 
We're not asking for a right to be wrong. We're not asking for a religious liberty exemption to do our own thing, where our own thing is some crazy hair-brained idea. We're asking for the right to live out the truth and to bear witness to the truth. Which leads me to the third lesson from the pro-life movement, which I'm going to go through more briefly, just really in outline form, so then we can open up this forum to questions. But the pro-life movement wasn't content simply to, one, say the Supreme Court got this case wrong, and two, don't coerce us. They didn't simply say, Supreme Court, bad judicial activism, protect our religious freedom. The pro-life movement said both of those steps, step one and step two, are at the service of step three, step three, which is to make the case in the public square. The pro-life movement said, we don't just want to keep our hand clean. Uh, don't force us to perform abortion. They said, we're going to bear witness to the truth about the dignity of unborn human life. And that's why, uh, 44 years later, your campus could go to DC and march for life. Because for 44 years, your parents and your grandparents were doing the hard work, especially when it was most difficult, to bear witness to that truth. Um, I imagine many of you know how difficult it is today uh, to defend the truth about marriage. Perhaps not on this campus, uh, but when you go back home for Christmas vacation or for summer break, when you go out into your first job after you graduate, you'll see how difficult it is in mainstream secular society. That's what it was like in the 70s and the 80s for the pro-lifers after Roe v. Wade. Um, elite universities weren't giving tenure to professors with the wrong beliefs about abortion. They weren't even interviewing them and hiring them in the first place. Um, someone like Princeton, Robbie George is the exception that proves the rule. Uh, point to the other adamant, outspoken pro-life faculty members at Princeton during the 80s and the 90s, and they're virtually non-existent. There was a litmus test, not at the level of government penalty, but at the level of popular culture. And so you don't see many uh, elite sectors of society embracing pro-lifers then. Today, it's much easier to be pro-life. It's much easier today to say that you defend the dignity of the unborn child and of the mother, that you're both pro-life and pro-woman today. You can make that argument in the public square and in elite sectors of society much more easily than in the 70s and the 80s because of the work that your parents and grandparents did. The same thing now needs to take place on the marriage question. If you want to leave a future for your children and your grandchildren where they can live out the truth about marriage and bear witness to the truth about marriage and it not be something that will kill their career, it'll be up to what you decide to do in the next few years. And I want to give you uh, four different um, concrete examples, uh, pieces of advice that I've learned from the pro-life movement on how to do this. The first is to make philosophical arguments in addition to theological arguments. Uh, the pro-life movement said that our basic argument rests on philosophy and science. Um, there's nothing distinctively Catholic about being pro-life. All you need to be is pro-rational. If you believe in science and you believe in reason, you can come to the conclusion that the unborn human being has a right to life. And they said, look, we're not imposing our morality on you. We're not imposing our religion on you. We're simply recognizing that human rights begin when human beings begin. And as a scientific fact, scientific fact, a human being begins at fertilization, at conception. Each and every one of us 
unless you're a monozygotic twin, was once a zygote and was once an embryo and once a fetus. Everyone in this room, and everyone in this room right now has a right to life. We had a right to life when we were a toddler. We had a right to life when we were a newborn. We had a right to life when we were a fetus. We had a right to life when we were a zygote. That's the basic argument. And you can make that argument with one of your secular neighbors without averting to subsequent questions about the nature of God, about the nature and destiny of human life. But we can talk about human life right here, right now. Once you win them on that, you'll find that it actually opens the door uh, to evangelism. Uh, there have been several converts to Catholicism who first converted to the pro-life cause. Uh, Bernard Nathanson, one of the founders of NARAL Pro-Choice, and Hadley Arcus, one of the architects of the pro-life movement. Each one of them first were convinced about the abortion issue and then said, what is it about the Catholic Church that it's the only major institution that's telling the truth about this issue? And they were open to investigating the claims of the gospel. So there's something here to say that we can defend the natural law case. Just like we do on life, do it on marriage. I'm not going to rehearse that argument. That would be an entire separate lecture. But if you don't know how to make that argument, uh, learn it. Um, there's going to be work that needs to be done here. The pro-life activists in the 70s and the 80s, they learned how to make a secular argument for life. So too, we need to learn how to make that philosophical argument for marriage. Second uh, lesson from the pro-life movement, they leaned heavily on science. Uh, there was a great piece last week uh, published, um, I'm forgetting now where it was. It was either Slate or Salon or The New Yorker. It was in a liberal online publication. And the author said that some people claim that politics um, is downstream from culture. Well, culture is downstream from technology. And he said it's the ultrasound image that has shaped many people's moral imagination uh, when it comes to abortion. And that frequently the first baby picture that people have is an ultrasound photo. The first time you tell your friends on Facebook that you're pregnant, it's with the ultrasound picture. And he says, no one refers to that child as a fetus. And as soon as everyone says, congratulations on your baby, the argument is won. So they appealed to science. Now, there's not going to be science um, that explicit and that powerful in the marriage case. But there is social science. And the best social science on this issue consistently shows that mothers and fathers aren't replaceable and that children do best with both a mom and a dad, that men and women interact with children in distinct and tangible ways, that fathers have unique ways in which they tend to interact with children, and mothers have complementary ways. You can see this if I tell you that on a Saturday morning, one of the parents is in the living room wrestling with a five-year-old boy, and this parent's teaching the boy that it's okay to put people in headlocks, but it's not okay to bite or to pull hair or to gouge out eyes. Which parent is most likely in the living room? And the laughter suggests that I don't, I don't even need to finish that sentence. It's not because of some global conspiracy of gender stereotypes in which generation after generation uh, has you know, formed young men to want to wrestle. It's what, what's comes natural to guys. It's what guys enjoy doing with each other. We enjoy roughhousing with each other. And it's what dads enjoy doing with their sons. And when sons don't have this form of what sociologists call rough-and-tumble play, um, they tend not to be able to control their anger. 
they tend not to be able to control distinctively masculine aggression. Uh, so a boy whose father at age five is wrestling on the living room carpet, and at age 10 is tossing a football in the backyard, and at age 15 is teaching his son how to tie a tie and how to get ready for his first high school dance, he's helping his son develop into a man and channel those distinctively masculine tendencies constructively rather than destructively. Uh, so boys who grow up without their fathers are more likely to commit crime, less likely to graduate from school, more likely to go to jail, less likely um, to be employed. And we see that this is true even when there's a second mother in the home. Whether that second mother is the grandmother, which is the most common type of same-sex parenting in the United States, it's a child's mother and grandmother raising a child together, or when that child's second mother is a same-sex partner. Neither of those second mothers replaces the missing father. This isn't what the media tells you. I can give you ream after ream after ream of amicus briefs from the left saying that there's no difference between same-sex parenting and opposite-sex parenting, but not a single one of those studies that those amicus briefs cited uses, used large, random, or representative samples. And if you know anything about social science, to draw a conclusion about a population at large, you need a sample that's representative of the population which is why you need at least a representative sample and preferably a large random sample at that. So learn the social science on this. Uh, learn how to show um, both the philosophical and the scientific argument of these things. Third lesson from the pro-life movement, um, they found better spokespeople and they told stories. Um, they didn't just rely on the philosophy and the science and they didn't just have old, white, gray-haired men uh, lecture the public about the evils of abortion. Uh, what they found were young, articulate women, uh, people like Lila Rose, who could speak about how abortion harms both unborn children and their mothers. And they found women who had experienced abortions, who had suffered through abortions, and who regretted their abortions, and who could speak about how abortion uh, didn't solve their problems, but created new problems and could share their stories. And so you see organizations like Feminists for Life, and silent no more. Here I think um, there are a surprising number of both um, gay and lesbian adults who are against same-sex marriage, who say simply because I'm attracted to another person of the same sex isn't a reason to redefine the central institution of society and to deprive a child of a mother or a father. And you have now um, adult children of same-sex couples. Um, Children who were raised by two moms or two dads um, now speaking out against gay marriage. And these are the stories that I find most uh, impactful to myself is that in one of these cases you have um, both Katie Faust and Heather Barwick. And I can't remember which story I'm about to tell. It's one or the other, so I'm going to mention both uh, women. They're both in their mid-30s. Um, and for one of them, they were in favor of gay marriage. Uh, they wanted their two moms to have the legal right to get married. And so throughout their high school and college years and their young adulthood years, they were activists for gay marriage. And it's only after they got married to a man and they saw what their husband was doing for their children, how their husband fathered their children, that they were able to articulate to themselves what they had missed out on by not having a father. Um, and so they actually switched on this issue. They went from being in favor of gay marriage to being against same-sex marriage. And what they said was that the redefinition of marriage creates, and this is a quote from one of them, I forget which, but quote, 
institutions for missing parents. And this is what they mean by that. Take the case of single parenting. No one incentivizes and encourages and celebrates single parenting. We recognize that sometimes it's a tragic necessity, but no one holds it up as an ideal, and we don't create institutions around it to promote it. The same thing is true of divorce. No one goes out and says, one day I hope I'm a divorced dad. It's not something that we hold up as an ideal. We don't create institutions around it. We don't promote it or celebrate it. And as a result, a child uh, being raised by a single parent, a child being raised by divorced parents, is given the freedom to say, hey, this divorce has been really hard on me. I know you both love me, but it's been really difficult having gone through this. Or in the case of the single parent, it's really hard that dad doesn't care, that dad disappeared, that he didn't man up. And we as a society um, legitimize uh, those voices and those children. And what either Katie or Heather were saying was that with the redefinition of marriage, we now create an institution for the missing parent, and then we stigmatize the child who says this is difficult. And here's what they mean by that. First is that the redefinition of marriage leads to a redefinition of parenthood, which leads to a redefinition of childhood. So we now see the problem of surrogacy being exacerbated with same-sex marriage. And this is just like the example which I opened with. This is a problem that straight people created. Uh, the IVF industry in the United States is entirely unregulated. I call it an industry on purpose because it's largely a money-making uh, um, uh, procedure here in the United States. No regulations. Uh, it creates many, many more embryos than are ever implanted, and many of the embryos that are implanted are subsequently uh, destroyed. They call it selective reduction. So you have this problem that already exists, and now it's exacerbated in the case of same-sex marriage. Because many same-sex couples desire a child of our own. Uh, so say you're a same-sex male couple. One of you can provide the sperm, but you will have to buy someone's eggs, and you will have to rent someone's womb for nine months. And so right there at the beginning, there's the question of exploitation of the woman who will be the surrogate mother. Uh, most upper middle-class, college-educated women don't volunteer to be surrogate moms. It tends not to be people at the upper end of the socioeconomic sphere. It tends to be people down on their luck, uh, predominantly people from minority communities, people without college educations, frequently people overseas. So there's lots of surrogacy tourism and exploitation of women overseas. So that's one problem that this gives rise to. But then the second problem is that you're creating that child from the very moment of conception to then be deprived of either a mother or of a father by design. It's not through some accident that something went wrong and there's a single parent, that a marriage didn't work out, there's a divorced parent. By intention, by design, um, this is now being viewed as equality. So the first part of tonight's title, Marriage Equality, Redefining marriage redefines parenting, which then redefines childhood. So one of the amicus briefs at the Supreme Court was from the perspective of several children who had been raised by same-sex couples. And they said, a generation ago, when we went to guidance counselors at our high schools, when we went to therapists and we said, hey, it's hard being raised by two moms or two dads, not having the other mom or a dad, the therapists empathized with us. And they said, yes, it is. How can we get through this? 
They say children today, when they express those um, feelings, are told, you're suffering from internalized homophobia. The problem is not with your family structure. The problem is with you. And that's what Katie or Heather were getting at when they said that redefining marriage creates institutions for missing parents. Now, I can tell you that story, and it has a certain level of impact on you. Having Katie or Heather at this podium telling you their story and about how they still love their two moms, and yet they still missed out on having a dad, and that they still don't want to redefine marriage so that other children go through their experience, that's even more powerful. And so one of the lessons from the pro-life movement, find additional and better speakers. All right, let me go to the fourth lesson from the pro-life movement and then some concluding remarks. The fourth lesson is that the pro-life movement ministered to people in need. It wasn't just they talked a good game about being pro-life. They've set up the largest network of pregnancy centers in the United States. It's such a large network that if you look at Lila Rose's most recent video from live action, when she calls up all of the Planned Parenthoods and says, hey, do you offer prenatal care? They actually refer people to CareNet, uh, CareNet being one of the crisis pregnancy center networks. The pro-life um, activists in America didn't just say we're going to oppose abortion. They said we're going to do things to help women in need. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Sisters of Life in New York City take women into their homes, help them when they're going through an unplanned pregnancy, help them make a choice for life, make a choice in accordance with their values, and then either place that child for adoption or help these mothers raise their children. There are networks all across the United States. Uh, there's one about three blocks from where I live in DC, the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center, staffed almost exclusively by volunteers, funded almost exclusively by small donors doing concrete aid to women in need. The question now is, what does that look like um, in the same-sex marriage context? If you're not in favor of gay marriage, what are you in favor of for people with same-sex attractions? And that's going to be a question that your generation answers. Um, the question here is, what does it mean to show solidarity and friendship and community and fraternity for people who won't find solidarity and community inside of marriage. One of the arguments that we made in the What is Marriage book is that the bad vision of marriage simply collapses marriage with companionship in general. It says that whatever marriage is, it's just the highest degree of companionship. And we think that gets marriage wrong. So if marriage is about a certain type of relationship, a comprehensive union, a conjugal union, a union of one flesh ordered towards procreation and the bearing and rearing of new life, that leaves many different and other types of companionship available that are non-erotic, that are non-sexual, but are still meaningful. A part of our problem is that we're placing all of our eggs in the basket of eroticism. And we, we have a dearth of male friendship in the United States today, for example. This is why so many revisionist historians say, oh, Abraham Lincoln, he must have been secretly gay because he had all these intense male friendships. No, it's just that their culture had a much healthier culture of male friendship than our culture does. So the challenge now is, when Thanksgiving and Christmas roll around, what will you do to reach out to uh, people in your community uh, who won't be able to marry because they're not attractive to that form of communion? Uh, they have same-sex attractions. They're striving to live out 
the truth. They're striving to live out chastity. Are you inviting them to your family's home for Thanksgiving dinner and for Christmas Eve celebrations? Are you inviting them to be the godfather or the godmother to your children? Are you helping them find other forms of meaningful community um, outside of the redefinition of marriage? It strikes me that that's going to be an important witness uh, from the Christian and the Catholic community in particular to say that while we're against redefining marriage, we're not against gay people. So let me close with uh, two lessons from two popes. Uh, another way, every Catholic should close with two lessons from two popes. And it's going to be John Paul II and Benedict XVI. That was a joke. It's, it's true, but there was also an implicit joke there. Wrong crowd. All right. <laughs> John Paul II. John Paul II was a young bishop at the Second Vatican Council. Um, and he was there. Um, actually, he might have been a paratist. No, Ratzinger was a paratist. All right. John Paul II, young uh, bishop at the Second Vatican Council. He writes one of the first schemas um, for Gaudium et Spes. And one of his analyses is that something that's gone wrong um, in the church and in the world is a crisis of anthropology. That the 20th century's problems are fundamentally about getting the nature of the human person wrong. And the examples he pointed to, he said, look, we just had two world wars. We had three totalitarian regimes. We had the Gulag. We had the Holocaust. Uh, what we did here was that we eclipsed God, and we thought that would elevate man. But what it really did was it simply diminished man. It made man a cog in the machine. He then extended that analysis uh, when it came to abortion uh, in his uh, Gospel of Life encyclical. If he was around today, he would say that the debates we face about the redefinition of marriage, about gender identity and transgenderism, the continued debates about cloning and embryo-destructive research, they focus on three anthropological truths. The truth that we're created in the image and likeness of God, that we're created male and female, and that male and female are created for each other. Those are the three beliefs, the three truths, uh, that I think you and your generation are going to have to spend the bulk of your lives defending, uh, bearing witness to. Those are the underlying anthropological mistakes um, that undergird much of the culture war. And so we're going to need philosophers and theologians and psychiatrists and psychologists and biologists and social scientists and more or less every form of academic, every form of scholarship to be investigating the truth about the human person on these questions and then presenting the results. Because one of the things we know is that there's a unity of truth. There's not theological truth that's at tension with philosophical truth or scientific truth. And so we can show with an entire um, spectrum of arguments and of insights into the human person. But then the lesson from Benedict. You notice I mentioned a bunch of academic disciplines. Benedict was a world, is a world-class academic. Um, and yet Benedict, being this world-class theologian, world-class philosopher, is the first to insist that it's not the arguments of the intellectuals that win converts. It's the lives of the saints, and it's the beauty of the artists. Um, so in these questions in particular, it won't just be enough that you do good scholarship, that you make good arguments, that you bear witness in what you say. Uh, the real way that you'll make a lasting contribution on these issues is to bear witness in the life that you lead. Uh, to live out the truth about the human person and about human family um, in a way that is beautiful and attractive.
Your neighbors will be persuaded 20, 30 years from now when they see your family, that you have all the struggles that their family has, no families without struggles, without hardships, and yet you bear those burdens, you shoulder those burdens in a way that has beauty, in a way that has something attractive. That's going to be the church's long-term defense of religious liberty and defense of marriage. It'll simply be living out the truth in a way that's both holy and beautiful. Thank you.